that's the whole goal is to help you know cut the learning curve and then to help people more and more people enjoy this great sport of fly fishing and still water fly fishing in particular welcome to the fly fishing 97 podcast featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry we focus on guides conservation resort managers gear and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers the fly fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by the fly crate Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Flycrate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Flycrate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com. Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Today, we're really excited to have on the program Phil Rowley. Now, Phil is from Edmonton, Alberta, a very well-known fly tire author, still water specialist. He's got a fly fishing still water app along with Brian Chan, fly fishing schools. I, this is a long resume, Phil. Just bear with me a second. I'm just going to read it to you. <laughs> A little bit. Phil's got instructional DVDs. Uh, you're probably all familiar with Conquering Chironomids. A uh, member of the gold medal team at the Canadian Fly Fishing Championships. And before I run out of breath, you have uh, Flycraft Angling. Phil, thanks for coming on the program tonight. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. You're a hard man to get a hold of. I know you're very busy. Uh, spending a lot of time out there on the water, which which uh, is a good thing. Have you had a busy spring, uh, kind of early season so far, or how, how's the season been? Yeah, it's been incredibly busy. For me, it starts first weekend in January with the fly fishing show in Denver. Essentially, I spend what seems like every weekend at fly fishing shows across North America and fishing shows probably from that first week of January till the end of April uh, or so, and then once the ice kicks off the lakes, then it sort of morphs over to on-the-water stillwater school. So I've been, so far this year, I've been in uh, Philadelphia, Edison, New Jersey, Seattle, Bend, Oregon, the Bay Area in Pleasanton, um, or am I missing Vancouver, back my old stomping grounds, Vancouver Island, Detroit, Michigan, Corbett Lake Lodge, do a school there. I just got back from two weeks in Manitoba where I do two week-long back-to-back schools out there. I do two schools in the spring and a school mm-hmm. in the late fall. Um, and I'm sure I missed something. But. Well, I know you're busy on that, that fly fishing um, circuit as far as shows. And that you know what? that, that The fly fishing show that I know you, you go to most of those, if not all of them, that that is really a great show, isn't it? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, they're they're all great shows. Um, you know, the Denver show, the first one of the year, is a really vibrant, active show, well attended. You know, everybody's just uh, crawling the walls to go fishing, so it's good that way. And then the Edison show, which was formerly the Somerset, New Jersey show, which is the largest one in the world yet to move venues uh, last year. And that, you know, the world comes to that one too. So, no, it's great to be involved. I'm the I'm sort of the Stillwater guy, running around there in my own little world. Well, that's uh, honestly, Phil, that's something that's very close to my heart, and I can't wait to talk yeah. all things Stillwater with you. But I always like to, on the program, kind of kick things off, find a little bit about your roots, your history. Tell me how your fly fishing journey kind of got started. Well, I was born in England, um, emigrated when I was seven years old. Uh, moved, uh, emigrated to British Columbia, lived in Chilliwack for about a year and grew up on, then we moved a year later to Vancouver Island. That's where I grew up and I got introduced to, well, I actually got introduced to fishing in England when I was about six. Um, went out with a friend and course fishing's big over there, fishing for carp and bream and roach and rudd and, and a bunch of other species. That sort of got the hook in me and then I, as I grew up, I just fished conventionally off piers and docks and rocky outcroppings around where I grew up in the greater Victoria area. And then I moved to Vancouver, and that's uh, early 20s, um, and got introduced to fly fishing there. Ironically, my wife and I, I think we'd just been married a year or so, we had gone for a vacation on Cameron Lake on Vancouver Island and spent the week dragging around pots and pans and all kinds of things to try and catch fish and not much luck. And this gentleman came down, who I swear was the essence of Roger Cade Brown, wicker creel, fly rod, a couple of casts, 
caught a bunch of fish, took a couple home for dinner, and I sat there dumbfounded going, there's something to this. Because I'd had a friend I played hockey with who wanted to, me to, had asked me to come out and go fly fishing with them. So after that, I sort of called him up when I got home and took a couple of rudimentary casting lessons and went out to the Skagit River uh, east of Vancouver and got my first trout on the fly on my first trip. And I was, pardon the pun, hooked because, first of all, the fight of a trout on a fly rod as compared to the conventional way I was fishing with all the weights and everything on it was just unbelievable. And as I started to investigate the sport and particularly the entomology and just understanding the environment trout live in, it just flipped a switch in my head and I've been addicted badly ever, ever since. It's amazing how addictive it is. And I, I think that's a very familiar path, which you're talking, you know, you start out with the gear, the pots and pans, as you call it. And I know that lake you're talking about, Cameron Lake, if you can catch fish on a fly in that lake, that's, that's quite a task because that's a real deep body of water. Yes, big browns in there. And it was pretty humbling, too, because we're having a struggling week. And I remember the, in the lodge that they had there was all a sort of wall of fame there. And there's a little girl with wiener on a stick, and she had like a five-pound fish she'd taken off the dock because she was driving her dad mental. And he just fine stuck a hook with a wiener on it. And she's like, Dad, Dad, Dad. So that's another, it's like, I, I've got to change how I do this. <laughs> I'm getting beaten by a wiener and a stick. So when did you catch the stillwater fly fishing bug? Um... Soon after, you know, you started fishing in British Columbia, but British Columbia's got such a rich heritage of of stillwater fisheries, uh, you know, with the history of the Kamloops region, and it was the most accessible. And uh, again, I just started working at it, and, and just something just clicked in it. I liked, you know, all the problem solving and, and figuring out the puzzle that goes on with it, right? Learning about the bugs and learning about structure and where fish are at certain times of the year and why, and just, you know, just became a total student of it and read everything I could and went out and practiced as much as I could. And from there, you know, I I started to learn to tie flies and that was more fun than I thought it was going to be. And then once you it's one of the things I like about fly fishing is all the other activities you do when you're not on the water that support it just sort of feed the addiction. Yeah. And, you know, every time you're at the vice, every fly you tie, you've already envisioned how it's going to perform and the giant fish and the numbers of fish it's going to catch doesn't always work out that way, but it's fun to dream. And, um, you know, I started getting more and more proficient at it and uh, continued fishing, of course, and then started um, tying flies for local fly shops in the greater Vancouver area. And, uh, I was probably naive when I thought, you know what, nobody's tying dry flies, so I'll do that, <laughs> which was not a well-thought-out plan because um, we didn't have the abundance of quality hackle available to us that we do nowadays, and it was uh, a learning curve on that aspect because um, the hackle wasn't cheap. But you know, one thing about dry flies, they're so proportionally demanding, it, I think it really improved my, my fly-tying skills and just the repetition of doing it over and over again. But... Uh, I remember actually taking a day off work to see if a guy could do this full time and, you know, taking, starting at eight and having a lunch break. And it was by the end of the day, I was like, I don't want to do this. Well, that's, (laughs) that's something that I, I've experienced firsthand. As soon as you take it to that level, it kind of, it sucks the passion out of you a little bit. Yeah, because you've got, you know, I have to do a minimum one or two dozen flies a day just to keep up with demand. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember taking a bunch of flies in, dropping them in the bin, and somebody comes around the corner and buys them all. I'm like, what do you need all those for? Buy more, buy stronger tippets. (laughs) Wait wait a minute, that took me uh, about four hours or or more. (laughs) And then you walk out the store, great, I'm behind. I thought I was ahead, further behind than I started. So that started, carried on, and that led to doing tying um, clinics in the stores, and um, then it started into fly fishing seminars, and, and in that time period I wrote my first book Fly Patterns for Still Waters I'd written a number of started to write articles for magazines um, ironically I couldn't get published in Canada it was funny my first article was published in a, in a, a Fly Tire American Angler one of those two magazines out of the states and it just sort of once you get published once it sort of starts to snowball uh, from there um, you know you've sort of cut your teeth if you will and then the book took off and I wrote the book because at the time there was little in the way of dedicated stillwater pattern books so I had a number of patterns I'd created and then had the good fortune to meet other people through that process and put their flies in there as well and and be true to their origins to those people and um, you know and it's just 
escalates after that. Once you've finished a book, then you start getting you know invitations to come and speak and do presentations, and it just snowballs from there in a good way. I'm curious, Phil, because you've really seen, I'm sure, fly patterns evolve from, from back in the day when you started doing this. Maybe speak to that a little bit. How have fly patterns for still water changed in, in your mind? Well, there's way more, you know, there's... Uh, the synthetic side of the fly tying ledger has exploded. So there's so many great materials out there with so many different applications. Um, you know, typically for still water, we're not necessarily using materials for what they were originally designed for. I'm thinking of things like flashaboo, which is probably more considered accents for tails and wings and things like that. And we started using them for bodies on chronomets and those kind of things. And, and what also helped um, through there is just our greater understanding and actually seeing aquatic insects, you know, um, using throat pumps and things like that, you'd start to see the live things and start to tie flies that mimicked the live pupa as opposed to sort of stuff you may have sampled in the past out of a um, you know a fish you kept for the table or something like that. So mm-hmm. that's evolution um, just and just experimenting. And for me, when I started writing the book, I had aquariums in my garage. I had a 30-gallon aquarium that I had uh, all different insects in, which just sit and study them as my wife used to say kiss them good night every night but it wasn't quite that bad but uh <laughs> watching what was going on down there and it, it makes jurassic park look like it's a small world in disneyland because everything's eating everything down there um and just seeing you know the behaviors the colors uh, how insects the things they do and it was a real eye-opening experience and i got to you know at that time set up macro photography and start taking pictures of it and I was seeing things that you hadn't even seen in books before, right? And, and talking to friends of mine who are entomologists and learning from them and passing that information off because sometimes they hadn't, they'd heard about it but never seen it. And it happened to happen in my aquarium. That's really, that's awesome because I, I think about that a lot. And I think uh, as fly fishers, we've probably all done that at some level, but that sounds pretty extreme to me. <laughs> and to, to be able to watch, like say something as simple as a mayfly or a uh-huh. chronomid actually go through its emergence from beginning to end, that's quite unique. Yep. I remember one time, you know, everybody you, with chronomid pupa, you believe, you know, once they separate, you know, transition from the larval stage, better known to many of us as bloodworm, they just ascend right up to the surface and go. And I remember capturing a, a, a saw something wiggling in the bottom corner of the tank, and it was a chronomid pupa. So I separated it from the rest of the uh, community because they probably would have eaten it, put it in a little breeder tank, and that chronomid took four days to emerge. It just sat in that tank and wiggled around and, you know, sort of hard, you know, elevated and just sort of suspended. And then that sort of got me thinking, wow, you know, there's times we're not fishing chronomids when we should. We tended at that time only to fish them when we saw real evidence of a hatch. But, you know, you can have a hatch starting and start, the mass is starting to gather a couple of days before, right? And you're missing out mm-hmm. on some pretty good chronomid fishing when you're fishing other things. That's something I think about a lot. You know, by the time we on the surface see those insects emerging how many how many you know hatches have we missed well yeah it happens with mayflies it happens with caddis um you know they get active um or they you know in the case of the caddis they're similar to coronamids they'll spend a a period of time just sort of trundling along the bottom because i saw those in my aquarium they're they're not the everybody's got this vision of these big, you know, these traveler sedge pupas sculling up to the surface uh, rapidly after separating from their pupil case, you know, where they transformed, and and they don't. They trundle along the bottom, and and then eventually they get the urge, or they get get going, and they get, uh, I believe it's a lot of these insects use use trap gases to both add buoyancy and uh, assist in the final emergence process at the surface. And I think it takes time for that to, to gather and for the, there's a chemical separation going on um, between the outer skin of the pupa and basically the adult inside. So I believe that creates space. And of course, that's filled with the gases that sort of light that uh, pupa or nymph up. Uh, Calibatus mayflies do it as well. So, um, And that changes their look to the fish. They're a lot shinier and brighter and reflective. Um, you know, and that's why you know, certain patterns we started tying them that way um, started to really perform. Phil, maybe you can speak to that a little bit. So, as as say a caddis or even a chronomid is starting to emerge, do you fish a lot of um, bright silver crony patterns or uh, um, um, chromies, things of that nature? Um, early in 
the hats, not so much because they're darker. And I just got back from Manitoba, and here's a classic example. I've seen this species of coronamid before. So we're using a throat pump. We're fishing a foot off the bottom. And I actually video, you know, shot the beauty of an iPhone nowadays. You can instantly take video. So you've got these pupa that are a blood, a maroon to blood color, right? So they're freshly transitioned from the larval stage. They've still got the hemoglobin. And then they start, I'm watching them in the vial changing and that hemoglobin is dissipating and they're turning um, kind of a, a candy apple green, if that's a color, right? Mm-hmm. And then they start to get inflated with the gases and then now they're starting to become a lighter olive and more silvery. So you've got this progression in one species alone going through three color changes. So the more, the closer they get to um, hatching, the more inflated, the more shinier they become, right? So if you're seeing, generally, if I'm seeing lots of bugs popping off, then I'm probably going to fish more bright, shiny patterns because the trout will be seeing those pupa elevate. And then earlier in the emergence, they might be more somber in nature because they haven't had yet a chance to trap those gases. And also, I think the water pressure has an effect. Um, you know, down deep and fish, you know, I used to scuba dive when I was younger. You start to feel the effects of um, pressure as you start getting, one atmosphere is about 30 feet. So as you start getting down, you start to feel a world crushing in on you. Well, I'm sure it must have a similar effect to chronic pupa down deep. And that sort of inhibits that the skin sort of push tight. But as they elevate, that pressure is going to release a little bit and they get shinier. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that makes sense, right? It totally does. So if you're fishing, this is kind of a weird question, but if say you're fishing 15 feet of water, Phil, and you have an inkling that there's something starting, so you're down deeper with your chronomids, at what point in that water column, you know, say you start out at the bottom, say you're 14, 13 feet in 15 feet of water, at what point do you kind of lighten up? Uh, the more times, the more bugs you start seeing at the surface. And, and again, it, you you can follow the hatch through you know, careful use of a throat pump because that's probably the one food source in chironomids where every hour it can change. It could change to a different species, a different color, and that's, you know, with that species change, uh, a different trait in their um, sort of evolution, if you will, or as a, as a pupa, as they gather more gases, um, because you'll see them darken and all of a sudden they're olive, and then the next one you pump is, is kind of a green, chromy color, right? And that's the same. Uh, in that instance I just described, that was the same bug mm-hmm. just going through its changes as it prepares to hatch. Right. It's the stuff that keeps you awake at night. Yeah. Well, it's funny, <laughs> it's funny you say that because there's so many, like, it's a hidden world down there to us, really, isn't yep. it? And you're talking yeah, about it really it with your aquarium. You kind of get an inkling of what's happening. But, yep. you know, when you look at it in scale, that's one thing I think that a lot of people are drawn to in fly fishing is that there's so much to know. Like, where do you stop learning? I don't, I don't think you do. That's what the model on my website and my personal sort of business model is because you never stop learning. That's one of the things I love about the sport is you're always learning, you know, particularly on those days where it doesn't go according to plan. I think I learn more then because I'm spending, you know, more brain power trying to figure this whole thing out right, and trying different things and doing different things to sort of throw the odds in my favor. We all like those days where it's lights out, but um, it's sort of those days you got to work at, and if you crack the code that day, it's a pretty rewarding feeling. Phil, is that kind of a personality trait of you, like as far as like you're attracted to things like that, that uh, you just don't stop learning? I guess so. Um, you didn't think so when you started, so I get frustrated as much as the next person. It's like some days, like, I don't know, <laughs> I mm. give up. <laughs> But yeah, I do like, you know, it's like doing a jigsaw. I always say it's like a jigsaw. Stillwater fishing, stillwater fly fishing is like a jigsaw puzzle. You've got, you know, and some days it goes together like a three-year-old's puzzle with six pieces, and other days it's a ten thousand. Uh, piece puzzle of a blue sky and you barely get the borders done right and then nobody bothered to give you the box tops you haven't really an idea what this thing's supposed to look like to to begin with right and it's just every day on the water is different and that's what keeps you humble keeps you learning Um, all those kind of things are that's one of the reasons i love it so much do you find that fly fishers often have a preconceived notion of what the day is going to bring before they even get to the water and maybe aren't open Yeah, and I I see that a lot with the schools I do. And, you know, you try to answer that question so you don't seem flippant or or whatever, but they say, well, what are you going to fish today? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I haven't got there yet. I don't, I have an idea in my head. I, you know, this may be that, but, you know, I try not to have those preconceived notions because you tend to try and force a square peg in a round hole. Mm -hmm. 
and um, you, sometimes you close down your mind to information that'll change you from your chosen path. Um, you need to be. That's why you you get to the lake being observant. You know, taking investing ten minutes to poke around, turn over a few rocks, look at some logs, take out a cheap aquarium net, sweep through some weeds, see what's crawled out. You know, is there cat? Is there sorry? Well, cats do crawl out from time to time, depending on the species. Um, dragons and damsel husks because they emerge by crawling out of the water. You know, if there's been a recent wind activity with foam along the shoreline that's white it offers great contrast and it traps lots of things you're looking in spider webs all these kind of things and then as you leave the the launch area you know i'm not usually you know roaring out at high speed i'm cruising slowly looking in you know got my polarized glasses on i'm looking on the water surface i'm looking into the water to see if anything's swimming by are there birds working are there you're just a um a big sponge for information at that point. And from there, then you start to make your decisions about what you're going to do. It's, I love hearing you say that because I know, I know I'm guilty of it. I'm sitting at the tying vice kind of in anticipation of what might happen. So you're tying up some, say some chronomet patterns, you get to the lake and next thing you know, there's damsels everywhere and I'll, yeah. you know, you got to react, right? Yeah, and some people do try to, they get frustrated and they say, well, I've been fishing coronamids all day. Well, they don't have them in them or they, I haven't seen one all day, but that's what I want to fish. I say, well, go ahead and fish it then, but that's not what they're they're taking. You've got you've to listen to what the fish or the lake tells you they're doing. You know what I'd love to, to hear you talk about is indicator fishing in, in general. Because like, I know sure. you're, you're, you're famous for fishing leech patterns, balanced leeches. Maybe you can speak to the addiction of watching that float. Oh, indicators are, you know, they are on the on the presentation scale, they are probably the newest thing. Um, you know, I learned to, you know, my favorite way to fish a lake is chronomids and, and a floating line, uh, either with or without an indicator. It's, it's such a versatile tool, um, depending on your leader setups, whether you're fishing, you know, dries on the surface, which we don't do very much, but fishing, you know, that naked technique, we call it the 15, 18, 25 feet a leader and a... You know, depending on where you are, a single flyer or a team of flies, uh, and just creeping them back so slowly. And that method, you know, Brian and I talk about in our seminars, it teaches you two critical things that you need in still waters, fish in still waters, and that's patience and touch. So the patience is to, you know, make the cast, let the fly sink, um, move it back slow enough, and then learn to recognize the subtle takes because when the fish are feeding on small bugs, they don't expend a lot of energy. They basically inhale it and move on to the next one. So that take is subtle. Mm. And as soon as they recognize that's not what I thought it was, it's going out, right? And you, you've you got to learn. A lot of times we're all conditioned, you know, when you feel the right shoulder, if you're a right-handed caster getting pulled out of its socket, that's a hit, Um we all like those, but a lot of times they're really subtle. So the strike indicator, when it came on, it, to me, controls two of those key presentation elements, uh, depth and speed of retrieve. And that's what most people struggle with in lakes I see is they don't let their flies sink long enough and they don't retrieve them slow enough. So the strike indicator, the depth is governed by the distance between your indicator and flies, and then your retrieve is governed by how little or how much you move that, uh, you know, retrieve that fly line and, leader and indicator back towards mm-hmm. you right? and it's it just plain fun to watch that little ball go into the water <laughs> it's like being a kid again you know what amazes me is when you're talking about fishing like say uh straight down with a with a fast sink line why are those takes so intense like rip right out of your hand kind of thing i know isn't it? i joke with that we call it dangling that in a, in a coronament situation you know you teach people how to fish indicators long leader tactics maybe some slow sinking line tactics with clear intermediates or hover and then the dangling technique because if you put dangling first nobody'd listen to you <laughs> they'd all go i don't want, i don't care what i want i want that rod ripped out of my head yeah. i think it's a combination of the your 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 vertical your distance is quite short when you think about it even in 20 feet of water you might be 19 feet down. Your leaders are short, four or five feet max. You're losing. You're using low stretch lines, so there's no sort of loss of sensation or elasticity. And as soon as that, and you direct contact with the fly. So as soon as that fish takes the fly and starts to move, you feel it. Because yeah. there's little slack for the, you know, with the strike indicator because it hangs down 90 degrees. There's a loss of connection, direct connection between yourself and the fly. It's that indicator that, you know, there's a, sure, there's the odd fish that hits and runs it and takes it away. But a lot of times you've got to watch that indicator for signs of a grab. Right. And, you know, in, in water, you know, we usually dangle in water 20 feet deep or 
more. But if the water is murky, uh, last week in Manitoba, we were dangling in 14 feet of water. Hmm. And they, one of the lakes we fish has some huge tiger trout in it. You've got these fish that are three, four, five, six, seven pounds taking these flies. It's it's a good tug. It's also that contrast where you're doing nothing and you're just looking around and holding on and, and all of a sudden, bam, right. it's on, right? It's such a contrast. It's like zero to 100 in a blink of an eye. Phil, in that depth of water, were you fishing darker colored crawnies? Yeah, uh, to start, to start, and then, because early in the hatch, we had been there over two weeks, and this hatch started probably midweek of the first week. You just had to get your fly within a foot of the bottom. That's the zone they wanted, because depth is really critical with, you know, chronomids and small bugs, because although they eat a lot of them, they're not going to expend a lot of energy chasing them all over the place. They just swim at one level and just, you know, open their mouth and inhale whatever's in front of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so they really get fixated on depth, and the more bugs that get in the water, the more that zone. So sometimes you start fishing, you know, you can have your fly two feet off the bottom, a foot and a half, a foot, or whatever, and then all of a sudden it starts to really zone in where they only want it at a specific depth. And then as long as you had a, a coronamid, we were fishing, you know, we had a triple header on it one time. We had one was fishing a 10, one was fishing a black 12, the other one's fishing a chromie 14. They ate them all, but as that hatch progressed, by the end of the second week, had to be a foot off the bottom, fly had to be <laughs> ultra skinny, fly had to be size 16. And and that's because the fish are not getting smarter. It's, um, it, the term escapes me right now. Um, it's, it, they just know what food is. It's called search image, search image phenomenon or something. And it's just that they totally tune in to what um, they're feeding on and know that everything else that doesn't match that criteria isn't food. And, and other animals do it. Humans do it, right? We, If you think about if you're in a mall looking for your significant other and they're in a red sweater, that's what you look for, <laughs> right? You're trying to find them in this sea of people, and that's what you look for. Now, if they put their jacket on, right, it changes their profile. Their red sweater's gone. They pop up in front of you. It kind of says, where, where the heck have you been? Right, I've been here all the time. Well, I wasn't looking for you. Right, it's that kind of. That's probably a, that's a simplistic way to look at it, but that's how they get zoned in. You know what? That's a great analogy. I, that's going to stick with me. I I want to ask you, kind of take it down to a personal level, sure. Phil. If if you could pick one or two people that have been most influential in your fly fishing journey, who who would that be? Well, first one's Brian. Him and I have been friends and for over thirty years. Um, you know, we uh, first met, ironically, he was doing a presentation in Burnaby at Ruddick's Fly Shop uh, when it was still located in Burnaby. And I had bugs in my aquarium, and he knew it, so I lent him some bugs for the evening. <laughs> and we went out and had dinner beforehand and found out we have a lot of things in common outside of fly fishing and just struck up a friendship we've been at ever since. Um, so he's had a definite influence on me. Mm-hmm. Um, when Gord Honey was still alive, I spent a lot of time at his place up at Lac Lejeune. Right. Um, Geez, I used to talk to Gord every weekend on a fly yeah. f- on a fishing report back in the day. Yeah, yeah. he was. He, I did a lot of research for my book up. I stay up at his house at Lac Lejeune, and it was real tough fishing. You know, have a coffee in the morning on the deck, wait for the swallows to move in Big Bay, walk down to his boat, launch moored at the dock, and go out and catch fish. He's a pretty passionate man, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. He was, and he was. You know, people like him and Brian would you, you talk to them all the time, right? And you're problem solving together. And 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 you know, Brian's biology background as a fisheries manager was was really helpful in understanding fish and seeing some of the the things that uh, um, go on out there and, and understanding them or bouncing theories off of them. Hey, I saw this. I read up on it. Yeah, that's right. You know, I'm in the process of working on a book right now. The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Fly Fishing, and uh, the first chapter was the hardest. It was all about lake limnology and how lakes function. So Brian was gracious enough to sort of proofread it for me, and you know mm. that's where I felt most exposed. Because <laughs> if that was sadly wrong, the rest of the book is tainted because of it. But it passed muster, so I was a happy guy. A few minor changes, but <laughs> it was well, good. I got to give you kudos because I I can't tell you how much you've taught me without even knowing you just from whether it's YouTube uh, fly tying stuff or just seeing you at shows and and your partnership with Brian. Maybe you can talk about the um, the Stillwater Fishing app. Yeah, we got uh, we were approached by an app developer a couple of years ago. Um, 
you know, were we interested in putting this uh, handheld resource together? So um, he sort of had the framework and we had to fill in the, you know, he had the building, we had to put in the furniture. And um, so we've got uh, the various chapters. We've got chapters on, you know, fly patterns, uh, videos in there, equipment, uh, knots and leaders, entomology, and then strategies and tactics. And we've we've got over 120 uh, video tips in that app right now. The app is a free download. Uh, some of the content is subscription-based. There's some monthly annual um, or, or monthly, quarterly, or annual passes. I think a monthly pass is three, $3, $4 maybe, so like a cup of fancy coffee. And the benefit of this app is uh, once you download the content to your phone, you don't need Wi-Fi to access it. So it was a handheld resource that people could take on the water with them. And it's like having Brian and I in the boat. Um, we're continuing to uh, you know, update content all the time with that. And, and now starting to get the interaction of people saying, I'd like to see tips on that, which is really helpful to us, right? We've got a, still over 200 tips we've got to process and film and edit. Hmm. But uh, no, it's been, a, it's been a fun experience uh, putting all that together and keeping that affectionate monster fed. Yeah, it's all about content, isn't it? And it's, yep. it, it's overwhelming the amount of information that's available to you. And I think yep. the fact that you, you guys are willing to share some stuff that not a lot of people know about, like something as simple as chronomid fishing, there's so much to learn. And oh, yeah. uh, when you guys did, I'm curious about conquering chronomids. Tell me about that yep. journey you guys took in that well, DVD. At one point, Brian and I were going to write a book, and in books we thought, that's a lot of work, <laughs> as I say that as I'm writing another one. But with the explosion of video, you could show things and do things in a, you know, perhaps a much more three-dimensional way. And not to say, you know, I, I love books. I have an extensive fly fishing book library. They'll never go away, but it was just a way to, you know, tell the story using a different medium. And so we got together and put an outline together and then figured out how much it would cost us and then go source some sponsorship funding to help cover some of the costs and, and, and get that out. So we ended up doing a two DVD set that was kind of introductory to the life cycle um, and basic indicator techniques. And then volume two was the advanced stuff. Um, the, 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 because every you, we started talking about strike indicators, most people um, associate still water fly fishing with a bobber. Right, or hangest. Mm-hmm. We call them strike indicators because I always joke the difference between a strike indicator and a bobber is about four ninety nine. So, <laughs> um, and and uh, you know that's how people perceive coronamid fishing and still water fishing in general. And it, I think some people shy. Well, I don't want to do that, right? And it's like it's so much more than that. So the advanced stuff is the you know how to fish dries, um, and it was written on a North America wide, you know, on a North America wide basis. So we touched on droppers as well, multiple fly setups. Um, we talked about dangling that fast sinking line. We talked about slow sinking line techniques, a technique that is rarely used, but in certain situations has a definite application. About fishing the naked technique, about fishing low stretch leaders for indicator fishing in deep water, a technique I learned in California when I was down there fishing. Was that on Pyramid Lake? Uh, no, it was on Crowley. Crowley. I fish I fish pyramid. Crowley's in the Mammoth Lakes area of California, basically south of uh, southwest of Reno, about four and a half hours from Los Angeles. So we think some of the lakes in British Columbia get pressure. You have not seen pressure until you've seen some of those lakes with the amount of people they have on them. Hmm. You know, you got to be on the lake at six a.m. just to get a parking spot with your boat. But uh, you know the learning that method because when you use indicator systems with primarily a nylon based leader when you start getting long distances between your fly and, and the indicator there's stretch that's inherent to the to the and that coupled with you know a forgiving rod tip and all that stuff when you go to set the hook the leader the indicator won't pop right right it absorbs your take so now you've got an indicator stuck and a fish 22 feet down you know, how am I going to land this thing? you got to go back to the old days when we used to pull toothpicks out of corkies with our teeth. Right. And that's really not the way the indicator is designed. But what they uh, figured out down there was to take 25 or 30-pound braid and make your main leader out of that. So that's like your Fireline, mm-hmm. Power Pro, all those low-stretch leaders conventional, guys, um, conventional anglers use. And right. that's got no give, right? So... And the reason we use the 25 to 30 pound is because one of the hallmarks of braid is 10 pound strain, four pound um, diameter, 
when you, you it's bad enough getting a, a wind knot or some kind of tangle in nylon it's horrible in braid it's just get out the scissors and cut because right. there's no getting it undone yeah. right so it's kind of an ends justify the means system you don't make long casts with that in fact most times we flop out a roll cast and we've got maybe 10 feet of line if that out of the rod tip because one of my general principles with indicator fishing the deeper you fish the closer you fish the indicator because that fish is going to take that fly and is going to move a certain distance before that action is transmitted up the leader to the indicator. Mm -hmm. And the further you are away, the less likely you're going to either see or be able to recognize it. So if I'm understanding you correctly on that, Phil, so when you're fishing really deep water with an indicator, yep. chances are your, your float or your indicator will be set very close to your fly line? Yeah, well, no, it's the fly line itself. So, yeah, I always try to, just for castability, you always want to keep your indicator probably within three feet of the fly line. So you've got all your weight, you know, you know how the way fly casting works, the weight's the fly line. You keep your weight close to the fly line because you start getting that indicator way out on the end. It's just awkward and unbalanced and just doesn't cast very well. So we've actually only got maybe 10 feet of fly line out of the rod tip and then to our indicator. Right. right, And sometimes we have literally, you almost want to think I should dangle because you've got 12, 14 inches of fly line out and your bobber's right there and you're just staring right at it because they're taking so softly, you've got to react. As soon as that thing slides right or left, you've got to hit them or you'll miss right. it. What are some tips and tricks of the trade that you've come to know on getting that chronomid vertical? Like what's a fast, I mean, are we talking tungsten? Are we talking swivels? What's your go-to one of the biggest things is leader, your leader. Your leader between your indicator and fly must be level. You know, and a lot of people, when they start out, they, they put on a standard tapered leader, put their indicator on, attach some tippet, and go fishing. And um, this has happened a couple of schools where I've had customers, clients in the boat, and I've got one person who's catching fish at a regular pace, and the other, it's an hour and nothing. And they're using the same fly. Their indicators are set to the same depth. All those, you know, the common things we check out. And in this one instance, the one gentleman was said, look, I still don't think I'm at the right depth. Can we put the two indicators together? And literally from the indicator to the flies, stroke the leaders together. So we did. And to the millimeter, those flies were at the same depth. But in that, when I stroked the leader between my thumb and forefinger, I could feel one leader was level, same diameter all the way through, and the other one started thick at the indicator and then tapered off and then was level. So I said, I mm. think it's your leader. And he's, you really think so? And I said, well, jokingly, he said, what have you got to lose? You, we're not catching fish. Let's see if we can change that. So I use these um, indicator leaders um, that have a uh, feature about a two-and-a-half-foot butt section. So between my indicator and my fly line, I have a little bit of backbone that's going to help turn over these because level leaders are flimsy. They tangle easy. You've got swivels. You know, outside of British Columbia, you've got multiple flies. It's a tangle-prone system. But from that little short little tapered butt section on, it's level, right? And the other benefit of having this thicker, um, stuff to start with is it's got a perfection loop in the end of the leader. And when you use a loop-to-loop -loop connection with your fly line, it's not going to, like some, you can certainly make a level leader out of eight-pound test if you want. But the risk is if you don't have some kind of butt section or something in there, that fine diameter tip, it can cut into the welded loop of a fly line. You've got an inexpensive product screwing up a $90 product, right? So so when you do this, Phil, like um, just to get a little more specific on that, so what what pound? I usually start with two x ten pound, and then I will. These leaders, they're from Rio, and they're uh, ten feet long, regardless of breaking strain. And then I simply add tippet. So let's say I want to put this in context. I want to fish fifteen feet down. Well, once I get that indicator on, and between the indicator and the fly line, let's say I lose three feet just for easy math. So I've got seven feet leader, so I have to add, right, to get to my 15 feet. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to add, I've got seven. I'm going to have a two-foot final section below the tippet, so I've already got that nine. So nine less 15 is six. It still is, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to add six feet of um, tippet material of equal uh, breaking strain to the leader, and just triple surgeon's knot, and then to the other end of that is the swivel, and then two feet down, I'm having fluorocarbon tippet. Right. Right? I've got a swivel. Most times, 
rarely I don't use a swivel, but most times I'm using, we're using size 12 through 16 and probably a 14 on average. There are occasions you may use a 10 in a real windy, choppy day to sort of kind of anchor the whole presentation down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that midsection between the main leader and the final tippet section is where I ebb and flow my leader length. So if I move deeper, I'll add between the main leader and the swivel. If I shallow up, I'm going to come in, and that's my adjustment zone. And again, the whole context is from my indicator to my fly. As soon as that fly lands, that indicator sinks straight below the indicator. Because in that analogy I talked about earlier with the tapered leader, the gentleman who wasn't catching fish, even though they were both set, at I think, at 8 feet, because of the, the differing taper, thicker diameter leader material sinks slower than thinner, it droops off the indicator, right? Yeah. It's subtle. And yeah. when they're zoned into a depth, that subtle droop can rob you of six inches, maybe a foot in extreme circumstances, of hang depth. And you're, you're both set at eight, but one of you is not really hanging at eight, and the fish won't move to take your fly. Because we changed them up to my leader system. First cast, you got a fish. Second cast, you got a fish. Third cast, you got a fish. Well, it's all about, I, I mean, I would imagine it's all about resistance, right? Um, yeah, well, if you think about nymphing on a river, right? Um, I do a lot of European nymphing as well, um, and uh, a lot of times you're fishing very, you know, you're fishing leaders that may be 5X, 6X, and you're thinking, wow, are they really that spooky? No, thin diameter tippet and leader material sinks, slices through the current faster, gets your flies down there. So we're using sort of the same principle. We don't only have the current, but that thin diameter stuff is going to hang true straight down because you're level in the same diameter approximately all the way through your leader system. Whereas if you just started with a regular nine-foot tapered leader, those leaders are in the trout range are primarily designed for turning over dry flies, river and streams. So 50% of that leader length, four and a half feet in a nine-foot leader, is thick butt section. Then it tapers down into the tippet section. So it's not level all the way along. I'm going to ask you to think back about 10 years or maybe even less. How many people did you really, really see out there indicator fishing? Um, it probably started early, mid-80s or so. It started to get okay. more popular. And, of course, nowadays everybody does it, right? Almost to a fault. You know, there are times that I don't indicator fish. You know, if I, I still, my favorite way is to fish the naked technique that, you know, long floating line, long leader, and and uh, just creep the flies back that way and watch the fly lines for signs of a take or feel the tug. You know, sometimes when you're, I find deep indicator fishing, there's a there's a, a delay time between the times the fish takes the fly and the, it registers at the indicator, all right? And they can be so lightning fast at inhaling and expelling a fly. The, the you know the naked technique or a method that's more direct contact you're going to maybe stand a better chance of seeing the take that's not seeing it feeling it and to some degree seeing it before you actually feel it we're chatting today with phil roley from edmonton alberta fly tire author stillwater specialist and honest to god phil i could talk to you all night i, I, <laughs> I don't want to take up too much of your time but um tell me a little bit about flycraft angling like so what's available through your through your online business as far as products yeah but well, that's another thing brian and i started flycraft angling is sort of my you know, offshore limited company, though it's not. <laughs> um, like Brian's is Rise Form Fly Fishing, right? So we've got these little um, sort of businesses set up, you know, tax purposes and all that stuff. Um, and uh, we've got together, we started a, a Stillwater Fly Fishing store. And that started because both of us had our own sort of independent stores. And um, it also, that, and then also in conjunction, we would do seminars together or independently, and people would ask us, where do you get this? Where do you get that? Where do you get this? How do you get your flies? All this kind of stuff. And we'd say, well, so-and-so carries it, or they can dry there or there. And then in the end, they didn't have it. And finally, Brian and I sort of scratched our heads and looked at each other and said, why don't we start a store, right? And why don't we merge both of our stores into one sort of a one-stop shop location that we can certainly link through our websites, um, and that's what we started out doing. So now we've got the Stillwater Fly Fishing Store that we've got our flies on there um, that are tied for us to our specifications by Montana Fly Company. They do a great job for us in that regard. Um, we've got the quick release indicators. Um, what else do we have? Books, DVDs, and the site's in need of a, you know, the way technology goes, every 
seems like every three months it's different. So we're going to give the the hopefully later on this year a major upgrade and add a bunch of other products. As where well, where can folks stuff. find that at on, online? Uh, stillwaterflyfishingstore.com. Perfect. Yeah, or you can go to our respective websites, and there's links down the left margin. You can just click um, store. So, yeah, Flycrafting, I've sort of morphed out of that. That's sort of you want the parent company, and I've just been going more and more by Phil Rowley Fly Fishing because that's what most people, you know, when you use Google and look at how do people find you, it's they type in Phil Rowley Fly Fishing. So that's sort of what I'm going for. Well, now. I'll tell you, I, I sure try to keep up with you on, on Instagram and YouTube, and there's always, always something new to learn. I. I'm curious, from a personal level, Phil, if is there something you would like to see us do differently in fly fishing? Is there anything that you think we could do better at? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. <laughs> like, as far as, like, this is a question that comes up a lot. Like, sometimes people yeah. kind of have a beef with social media, and they say, you know, maybe we don't want to give away all the spots or um, yeah. sharing of information. I mean, there's a lot of ways to go at it. I'm just curious if there's anything that comes to mind in your world. Um, nothing, you know, the... Social media. I look at social media as a tool, right? And if you if you compare it to other tools, you can you know a circular saw. You can cut two by fours and frame a house and make a wonderful home, or you can cut your right hand off, right? <laughs> so um, it's it's whether you're using it properly. And, and I'm sure there's definitely you know the the world's a smaller place. Secrets are are harder to. It's it's a much more open place. But the same way. Um, you know, we all had to find out about new lakes to go to through some way. Just the, our um, little jungle drums we used to follow or the trap line we try and find out information on wasn't quite as um, easy to access as it is nowadays. So sometimes you've got to be careful with, you know, before you hit that post button, think about it a little bit, um, whether it's the appropriate thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to make my posts more learning-based. Right. Um you know this, you know, because we've also got a Stillwater Fly Fishing app Facebook page, and Instagram page as well. So we that's more focused on the app and what it can do for you, or just um, tips to help you, that kind of thing, and, and somewhat similar in, in mine as well. And uh, just you know, tr- fish pictures here and there, having fun, clowning around, you know, those kind of things. But that's a hard question because it's. You know, the world's always changing, and I've always been one to sort of adapt to the change rather than fight it. Right. I still remember when computers first came out, you plonked that giant IBM monster on your desk, and I looked <laughs> at it, and some of the people I was working with, that thing is not ever going to, you know, it's a $5,000 paperweight. And I looked at it and went, well, it's probably not going anywhere. I better figure out how to use yeah, this thing. Fair enough. Hey, I'm going to ask you to yeah. harness your, your inner artist here. If if you could paint a picture for us, your perfect day, your way, your species, uh, the lake, um, what would that look like? Kind of paint a picture for the listeners. Oh, the lake would have a light breeze on it, a little ripple, you know, the coronamid ripple, a little chop. So maybe in the metric world, about 10K, you know, warm but not sweltering hot. Uh, water temperature in the... 55, 56 Fahrenheit range, so fish are active, trout are actively feeding, it would be a lake full of probably browns and rainbows, you know, those fish play well together, um, yeah, bugs hatching, of course, all that kind of stuff, surrounded in trees, chirping of the birds in the background, not too many boats on the lake, but, uh, you know, a few that you can share the day with, the memories of. Hmm. No rain. What do you fish? <laughs> what are you fishing out of? Uh, I fish out of a number. Of, I have a problem. Okay, I have seven boats. Is that bad to admit? No, I got seven. Okay, I don't feel so. That's seven, three pontoon boats, and I've got old belly boats stored away somewhere. Um, I mostly fish when I'm. Um, I've got two boats. I've got a fourteen foot marlin that I guide out of on small trout lakes sink with single people, and when I'm on big water, because where I am in the uh, Edmonton area, Sherwood Park. I I also have access to non-trout species as well, pike and walleye and lake whitefish on the fly, and they're a blast to figure out because fly fishermen aren't supposed to catch those things. And um, they're bigger water, so I've got a 17-foot uh, G3 with a 40 horse on the back as well. Nice. Pick the tool for the job. And when we do our one of the reasons I have so many boats when we do our schools out to Manitoba. Um, 
the friends I do, you know, we partner with to do the schools, we bring boats for people to use um, because we have guests flying in from, you know, flying in from all over North America. It's obviously you can't check a boat on a plane. Um, so we have them waiting there for them. So we've got a fleet of boats that we put people in that have carpeted floors, you know, pedestal seats or seats, electronics in them, electric motor, Moby nets, uh, batteries, all that kind of stuff. So they can focus on the, on the fishing that the boat is going to behave because there's nothing more frustrating than fighting the boat or your watercraft all day long, right? Cause you don't get to fish cause mm. it, you can't anchor it properly. It's swaying around. You're uncomfortable. Um, all those kind of things. So we take care of that so they can focus on, on the learning because it's kind of a hosted school I do out there. They're morning seminars and then we pile them off and go off to visit a lake, come back debrief at the end of the day and go out and do it again. When you're doing these schools, you probably see a lot of reoccurring questions or concerns people have when it comes to fly fishing. What's a common question you get asked? What would be like the number one thing people come up to you and say, Phil, dial me in on this? Yeah, the one I hate the most, I don't hate it, but it's so challenging to answer is, what's your favorite fly? (laughs) My response, if I know the person, is like, how long is a piece of string? Right? Because that's so subjective. It's not even a fair question. No. Because, it's, but that's a common one. Everybody's looking for silver bullets. If I just do this one mm. thing, uh, and it's um, that's what again we back to the beginning here is it's such a fluid environment that we fish in. Things are always changing hourly, daily, weekly, and you've got to sort of try and stay in touch with all of that and interpret what Mother Nature is showing you that day. Um, so I think a lot of times people are trying to to have an A plus B plus C plus D approach to things, and sometimes it's A to L and back over to M and down to Z and up to A again, um, just the way sort of the problem-solving matrix works, right? So, right. Yeah, they get a little too, and um, just not being patient, right? Um, just letting things sit, letting things sink, moving things slowly, don't be in a rush, right? And it's, and I think a lot of people, if they're coming over from river and streams, it's a much more dynamic environment where they're walking, they're waiting, they're casting, they're mending, they're always doing something. Just sit in a boat still while you wait 30 seconds for a fly to sink and then pinch it back a half an inch at a time. I joke sometimes it just about kills them, right? If you're used to ripping around eight-inch articulated streamers all the time, um, it's, it's a little different to, to sit and fish a chronomid pupa very, very, very slowly or static, right? Well, that's something I definitely picked up over the years from watching yourself and Brian Chan as far as that slow, slow yeah. retrieve. When you think you're going too slow, just go a little slower. Yeah, well, with that naked technique, the the measure I use, if, if you're using it on, there's not too much wind, so you can see if you strip your fly line, it'll make a wake, you're going too fast. So if it's a calm day, you're going to retrieve that fly line back so slow that the line doesn't make a wake. It's just even the little squiggles, the subtle squiggles that form, they won't pull out. And we actually use those as strike indicators. Because if you watch one as far up the fly line as you can, and it starts to straighten, the only thing that's going to straighten a little squiggle like that is tension. So if you're moving the fly line so slowly that you're not putting any tension on it. Well, the tension's coming at the other end in the form of a fish, so you need to set the hook. And that's that leap of faith, because I didn't even feel it. You just saw the line start to move, and you hit it. That's that gut instinct. You know that feeling when you know your indicator's going to go down before it goes down? Yeah. Where does that come from? I think just experience, a little bit of faith, (laughs) um, belief that what you're doing is correct. I had that discussion with my son when he was in his late, mid-teens, he said, why'd you set the hook? Why'd you? I said, something just felt wrong. He said, well, how am I supposed to learn that? <laughs> I don't know, it just well, felt wrong. <laughs> so I hit it. Flight time. You know, hook sets are free. Fair enough. How was your trip to Corbett Lake? I'm curious how you made out out there, because I know I've... It was good. It was good. Anne has a beautiful facility there. It's, you know, doing um, schools at those lodges is nice because we have a little bit of um, privacy in that we can... Um, do this, you know, I usually, it usually starts the day off with breakfast and then a morning seminar that's applicable to the conditions of the day or what we're going to do. And then out on the water, I take people two at a time with me in that case, because it's three full days of fishing. I limit it to 12 people so I can get uh, four people in my boat a day. And then we, I spend, that's where the real learning takes place on the water, working with them, helping them, you know, sort things out and retrieve flies and just 
showing all I can about still water fly fishing to them. And then at night come in and have a dinner and a little bit of debrief, what worked, what sizzled, what fizzled, and then, you know, just relax and go to bed. I used to do seminars in the evening, but everybody's bagged right. <laughs> from being on the water all day long, including the instructor. So it's a chance for, for rest, and it's it's a model that works quite well. And then it's a great classroom because the water is crystal clear. You can see the fish. The fish this year are in good shape. They were you know, a couple, three pounds, and feisty and cooperative, everything you need in a school, right? Yeah, it's a beautiful part of the country, and, and there's sure some hogs in that water. Yeah, and some great food. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Uh, so I noticed, too, you were at uh, Roche Lake not that long ago. I saw some pigs. Yeah, that was actually last spring. That was kind of, uh, Brian and I did a um, right on ice off course, of course, <laughs> the late spring it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> While Brian was giving the morning session, I was breaking ice around the dock so we could get into John Frank Bay. Oh, wow. <laughs> I cleared a path because John Frank Bay was open, but the ice was just still gray ice, and I was able to slug through it and create a path so everybody could scoot through convoy-like and, and get out there. And yet the year before, it had been wide open. So It's fun. Um, we were up there the last two years on that, and I know we went the same time this year as we did last year, and it was very different. <laughs> yeah, it was totally different. Yeah, ice off was more normal. Uh, last year was really, really late. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the first day we had to go to Morgan, and uh, that was, you know, made it kind of difficult. When it's tough to, you know, we got a lake right outside the door, and now we got to go somewhere else because that lake's frozen. And of course, it's Morgan was one of the few lakes that was open, so it's pretty crowded. Mm-hmm. But we that's when we decided Brian do the first seminar. Phil goes and breaks ice. Have you had anything weird or wonderful happen to you in your time on the water that kind of comes to mind, Phil, as far as just bizarre fish stories? Hmm. I always like to get into that because, you know, there's 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 usually lots. They don't always come to mind right away, but... Oh, there's, you know, there's everything, you know, things like I remember fishing with my kids and on Tunkwa and Leighton in the summer months when the big bombers are coming off and, you know, releasing a fish and you just throw the stuff over the side of the boat and get smacked in the face with a fly rod thinking the kids had done something it's because a fish ate the fly right underneath the boat or underneath the net <laughs> those kind of things um what else nothing dangerous or crazy um you know i've almost had rods ripped out of the boat caught them at the last second as they hit the gunnel yeah i remember gord honey towing me back once on jocko and uh well, it was two things on Chuck. Okay, so Gord Honey tows me back. I decide to leave the electric down, and I guess that put pressure on the prop, which unscrewed the little retaining nut, so when I go to fire it up, I don't have a prop anymore. <laughs> so it's high-pitched whine. I look down, oh, that's not good. So I had to get towed all the way in. And then one of the first shows I, I ever filmed uh, was with Mark Pendlington. Um, we were fishing Jocko early spring ice off, and I had the rod ripped out of the boat on camera and got caught on camera and, you know, chasing the chasing the rod through eight feet of water. It's like chasing a dog on a leash. I didn't want to get caught and eventually catching it and, and uh, grabbing the rod. The fish was still there for a second and then it was gone and the whole thing was caught That's on awesome. camera. That's awesome. That was pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> you know what, though? That's what keeps us coming back, right? If it was... If- if it was predictable, I don't think we'd like it. I had one of our clients last week brought his boat with him, launched it by backing his truck almost into the water. And it was a very steep launch, and his tailgate's just kissing the water and just stomps the brakes. The thing slides out perfectly, uh, drifts off, no rope attached to it, so we're all kind of chuckling. But he'd read the wind. The boat stops its momentum from the launch, and it just slowly creeps back and kisses up against the beach, or up against the dock. And I don't know if you've ever seen that Humminbird commercial with the... The uh, Basque boat he deploys the boat. It's got the pushes the button. The bow-mounted trolling motor automatically deploys. Yeah. It motors off. He's got spot lock, so it sits still. He parks his truck, and then he clicks the motor, and the boat just cruises by the dock, and he jumps in. There's two guys fishing on the dock, and the look on their face is priceless. Like he's got this this thing is trained. So I was joking with him. It was kind of the poor man's uh, <laughs> hummingbird uh, um, Minn Kota setup going on there. That's good stuff. <laughs> It was funny. Well, you know what, Phil? I really want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us tonight. If people want to um, maybe sign up for one of your schools, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Um, best way of doing that is go to my website, flycraftangling.com, and hit the travel section, and you'll see all my trips listed there. Right now I've got, if you really want to go for the 
big leagues. I've got a trip to Argentina in December, going down there again for the third time to chase those giant rainbows in uh, Lago Strobel, better known as Jurassic nice. Lake, with a with the average 10 pounds. Um, I actually had a gentleman the last trip I went down on a size 12 Prince Nymph under a thingamabobber, 22-pound rainbow. Wow. So that... Yeah, that was a monster. Um, so that trip, and then I've got a fall trip to Manitoba uh, to fish the lakes out there in the southwest region of the province. We base ourselves out of the Russell Inn and scoot around there within an hour's drive to a number of the lakes around there. And that time of the year, it's fish are chasing small bait fish, leeches, and you've got some great boatman and back swimmer activity if they're on. Um, so that, and you can also email me direct at flycraft at shaw.ca, and then... You can contact me through Phil Rowley Fly Fishing on Facebook, same on Instagram, Twitter to a lesser mm-hmm. degree. Uh, we've got the Stillwater Fly Fishing app. You just look in your um, Google Play or iPhone um, app store and just type in Stillwater Fly Fishing app. It'll show up in there. And you, again, that's a free download. Uh, some of the content's free and some of it's subscription-based. And we try to do our best to add new content to it monthly uh, as best we can. Stillwater fly fishing specialist Phil Rowley, thanks so much for coming on the program. You're welcome. And uh, I'd love to do a follow-up at some point in the future. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So thanks for... Th- you don't have to my arm to talk fly fishing. Well, thanks for putting all that great content out there because I, I don't think you're... Well, I'm probably you have an idea of how many people you guys influence out there because the things that you're doing are always cutting edge. And uh, on behalf of all people that read your stuff, follow your stuff, thanks for doing it. Oh, you're welcome. I'm just glad everybody enjoys it and finds it uh, helpful. That's that's the whole goal is to help you know cut the learning curve and then to help people more and more people enjoy this great sport of fly fishing and still water fly fishing in particular the fly fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com thank you for listening to the fly fishing 97 podcast your feedback matters let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed email us at mark at flyfishing97.com Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.